All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. Now, we have a bit of Lindroth Hockey uh, uh, history here today. So we've had on male, female hockey players. We've had on GMs. We've had on assistant coaches, but never a head coach. So right. today we have our first head coach. Yep. Give us the intro. Let's get to it. Yeah, today we're excited to have with us Scott Burt. So going back to Scott's playing days, he began playing junior hockey in the Western Hockey League, the WHL, from 1994 till 1998, and later began his pro playing career in the ECHL, starting with the Toledo Storm. From there, Scott continued to play between the ECHL and the WCHL for the next 10-plus years, along the way winning three Kelly Cup championships in the East Coast League um, with the Idaho Steelheads, two of those with Idaho, and uh, one with the Alaska Aces. After concluding his playing career, Scott joined the Alaska Aces as an assistant coach for two seasons, later joined Spokane Chiefs as assistant coach for the next six plus seasons, uh, joined his alma mater and uh, championship team, the Idaho Steelheads for a season as assistant coach and is now currently head coach. And also want to confirm because elite prospects sometimes likes to have incorrect information, but it also has you as head of hockey operations. So I don't know if that's true or not, but Either way, we do have the head coach of Rapid City Rush at the East Coast League with us here today. So, Scott, thank you for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me, for sure. Glad to be here. And is that correct, by the way? Are you also the director of hockey operations? Yeah, of course he is. Yes, yeah. That's how, that's how it's pronounced. Head coach, uh, director of hockey ops. Cool. So, and I've got some hockey – director of hockey questions later on. Cool. But, Coach Birdie, so let's, uh, let's bring it back to uh, – Kind of your childhood uh, coming from Canada, obviously hockey's second nature, but what made you fall in love with the game? And at what point did you decide that, hey, going the juniors route, uh, I just may be able to make a career out of this? Well, where I grew up, I grew up in British Columbia, uh, Canada, um, and I, uh, my father's with the RCMP, so I look back on it and anybody asks me about that as Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer um, back in the day, it's almost like an army brat. Uh, every five years you're transferred. So I grew up in British Columbia. I was born in McKenzie. Um, I lived in Penticton, lived in Trail, uh, moved all the way back up to uh, Chetwin, which is northern BC. And then uh, parents now reside in Grand Forks. So I've kind of lived, uh, lived a life all through BC. Uh, started my minor hockey career in Penticton, then moved over to Trail, and then uh, left Trail at the age of 16, went up to Prince George and played uh, uh, for the Prince George Spruce Kings. And then from there, I went to the Western Hockey League. So kind of all over the place. If anybody asks me exactly what my hometown, I just say BC, and they say, well, what do you mean? And I pretty much say, well, I've lived all over BC. So it's, it's tough to narrow down a, a real hometown, uh, meaning I was born in McKenzie, but I never lived there. So floating around like you did, uh, I take it the adjustment when it's juniors and you go off, uh, you know, you leave your house, you go to the juniors, it was an easy transition for you? Yeah, I mean, leaving at the age of 16 when I went to Prince George, um, it was, uh, I knew exactly what I wanted. I followed uh, some of the guys, Adam Deadmarsh, uh, grew up in trail, Ray Ferrell's from trail, Travis Green is from. Uh, Castlegar, so on and so forth about all these these guys that played in the Western Hockey League um, that went to the same high school and then they moved on. So it was almost like you were destined to do that if, if that's what you want to do as a, as a hockey player. So at the age of 16, I knew I was on my way out um, and uh, I had an opportunity maybe to play in trail, uh, but it was time for me to leave home and, and grow up and put the big boy pants on and 
and uh, start my career. So at what point did you say, hey, I just might be able to make a career out of this? Do you remember that moment? I, I was playing Bantam hockey. I, I tried out for a team. Uh, it was it was called uh, – it was an under-17 team. It was uh, put on by Hockey Canada at the time. Uh, now they have all these different tiers, but they took the best – the 10 best hockey players from BC, the 10 best players from uh, Alberta, and we made a team. It was called Team Pacific. Players on the team, Terry Ryan's a good friend of mine, Jerome McGinley, uh, who else do we have? Um, Chris Higgins. Uh, we had all NHL guys um, that were on the team. I was one of the guys that maybe didn't uh, make it to the NHL, but I had my stint in a couple of uh, training camps. Uh, so I played with some top-end guys um, on that team. And, and right from there, it was kind of like, man, this is an eye-opener. Um, I didn't really think I was going to make the team, but just randomly I did what the coaches said and, uh, they liked my relentlessness and, and, uh, my work ethic and, uh, I made the team. So, uh, I was 16 at the time when I made that team and, uh, it, uh, kind of propelled my, uh, my career from there. Was it hard to adjust at all when you're in the Western hockey league, especially, uh, kind of those last two and a half seasons. I mean, you were jumping around, uh, you started with Seattle, then with the swift current Broncos. And then those last two seasons, I'm talking about Edmonton ice and red deer rebels, was it hard to adjust to that? I mean, it's, it's got to be tough to adjust to new teammates. I assume a new system with a team and coach, especially as a young kid, you were used to moving around a lot. Yeah. Did that help prepare you the younger? Or was that still just tough regardless? Well, it, it helped me prepare myself. Uh, you know, I mean, I can go back and I could look at it when I was started my career in, uh, in Seattle. Uh, my first head coach there was Don Knockbar, who I had an opportunity to work with in Spokane for six years. And now he's the assistant coach in uh, uh, Stockton. Um, so he helped me open my eyes to tough hockey. He grew up in Prince George, so I kind of had a little connection with him there. Uh, now, that first game that I played when I was in Spokane was an exhibition – or sorry, with Seattle was an exhibition game in Spokane at the old Boone Street Barn. Uh, turned out to be a line brawl. The head coach of that team was – Mike Babcock, they were fighting behind this, the, uh, the, the players' boxes. It was absolutely crazy. And now it was like, wow, this is big boy hockey. And so there I, I, really, I really grew up. Um, so I spent that year uh, in Seattle. It was, we had a really good team. Uh, we lost in the first round of the playoffs. Then uh, after that, we had a new GM that came in. And that was tough. GMs always want their players. So about 10 games in the season, I got traded to Swift Current. Spent that year in Swift Current. And I, and I had an opportunity to play with great players there. Brad Larson, uh, head coach of uh, Blue Jacks. As a matter of fact, he was on that team Pacific team as well. Um, was on that team. So I knew Brad. A few other players there that I had, you know, contact with in, from British Columbia. So I finished that year there. The next year that came in was an expansion draft. Uh, so the Edmonton Knights came into that, uh, into the league and, uh, fortunate for me, I got picked up in the expansion draft. Well, the first general manager that signed me and spoke in Seattle was Bob Torrey, and he became the GM of Seattle. So there was kind of familiarity there where we had, and he had in his idea that he wanted me, knew me, knew my family, all that. So I went there. Deadline came, and I asked to get traded. I was having a good year, and, and Red Deer was uh, destined for a playoff run. So I got traded at the deadline to, to, uh, to Red Deer. And uh, finished the season there. We had an unbelievable team. Um, again, I had the opportunity to live with Terry Ryan. And you guys probably know his, his podcast a little bit, but he's a good yep. friend of mine. 
Um, and uh, so we kind of made some memories there. I lost out to uh, Lethbridge, who ended up going to the Morrow Cup, and it was a battle for both teams. Started the next year in Red Deer and then got traded back to Edmonton, where I finished my career. And I always ask, what happened? Why did I get traded back there? And they traded for a guy named John Catcher. Uh, they thought he could, I mean, he get 50 goals. I think he had 49 goals and they said they wanted a 40 goal score. So I went back to Edmonton and put up, I think 42 goals or something like that. So, uh, yeah. it was kind of a wash, but right after that, I started my career. So, uh, I look back, I was always wanted by a team. Um, and that was a good thing for me. It, I wasn't just a, a player that was just getting traded because I was a bad guy. I was, I was always wanted either for character or, uh, playoff kind of deadline deals, which, uh, worked out and, uh, I was happy with that. And then I, it kind of propelled me to get onto my, uh, my pro career. Maybe when I look back now, maybe I should have went back to, to CIS. I uh, went to school for four years. Maybe I would have grown up a little bit, be more mature um, before I started my, uh, my pro career. But I started at the age of 21 and I, uh, I don't look back now. And I like to ask this question to the players that have gone through this, especially the specific transition from either NCAA hockey or uh, juniors. But, you know, right after uh, your season with Edmonton, I assume uh, Toledo uh, reached out to you at the tail end of their season and signed you. Um, first of all, what was the story behind that? How did that, how did you get the call, the offer? And then again, what was that transition like? I know the WHL, different from NCAA, you're playing more, you know, NHL style physical hockey, no full cages or anything, but was that still a difficult transition? Then you're suddenly playing with grown ass men fighting all the time. I mean, that'd right. be a transition, right? Well, quick story on that is, I, Dennis Holland, um, his brother is, uh, the GM of, uh, Ken Holland, GM of Edmonton now. So Dennis grew up in, in, uh, in British Columbia. So maybe he had a, a, a little say in that, uh, he was player coach at the time. So I ended up living with him and his, uh, and his wife, Tammy at the time when I first moved to Toledo. So I kind of had somebody to kind of lean on. I didn't know Dennis, um, but I knew he was from out West and BC. So, uh, that kind of, uh, helped me out a little bit. Um, so I, I just got the call. It was after our last game in Edmonton. We weren't making the playoffs and they asked if I wanted to start my, my pro career. And I said, yeah, let's go hop on a plane. and went to Toledo. I had an opportunity to pick and, and choose a couple teams. Cause I was having a good year. And, um, just like here, you're kind of trying to get the top players that maybe aren't making playoffs or whatnot. So I, I, I chose Toledo. They were top of their division. We lost out in the third round. Um, but I had an opportunity to maybe look at some other options, but Toledo, I, I thought for me was the best option. Gave me an opportunity to end up going to uh, uh, Detroit's camp the following year. And I set a two-way deal. So, but that was fun. My first game, uh, I'll never forget. Uh, it was a, uh, and if, I don't know if anybody ever knows the old sports arena. They had really low glass. There was no glass behind the, the, the home bench. So you could actually, as players now, they high-five the bench where you can continue on to go high-five and high-five the fans. Wow. Uh, guys, guys would line up on the other team, uh, for a face off D zone or the O zone. And someone would lean over the glass and like kind of wave some bras or panties out. In the it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. It was nuts. It was, it was crazy. It was nuts. So the first fight that, that I ever seen, uh, fight broke up center ice. Uh, one guy got sucker punched. We were coming back to our bench. Our guy got sucker punched. And uh, I was sitting at the top bench and, and someone's yelling and the trainer's yelling, throw a towel, get a towel. And I'm like, Whoa, what's going on here? All of a sudden I look over to get a towel and a fan grabbed a towel and threw it on the ice to the, uh, <laughs> to the player because he busted his nose and he was out. And I was like, oh boy, where am I at? It was absolutely crazy. So that was really my first experience into the, the pro game. 
Uh, but I ended up, I think he scored one or two goals there and ended up playing in playoffs. So that was fun. Then the following year, I had the opportunity to go to Detroit's camp where I sat in the dressing room, Sergey Fedorov, uh, Peter Klein, all those guys were on the team. I was up in Traverse City, which was an unbelievable experience there. So I went through that and then went down to Adirondack and then I went back to Toledo for that, for that first full year. So um, I had that, that experience and it was fun. I, I seen some unbelievable fights in the, back in the old East Coast Hockey League days. I don't know if you guys ever seen the Kenny, Kenny Tasker, Trevor Sen fight. Yeah. 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 I, I had front row on that. So, and they fought about three times and then Kenny fought, uh, I think it was Brody Kopp and a couple, it was crazy. So we had a tough team and, and didn't back down and, and uh, it was awesome. It was a good experience for me for sure. So clearly after you saw that first fight, I mean, the next season you racked up 111 penalty minutes. So did you see that and go, yeah, I need to adjust my game a little bit or was your game already kind of like that? Cause I know when I look at your, you know, just quickly at your stats for your junior, you did eclipse 100 penalty minutes your first season, and then you kind of tapered off. So where did the physical play start coming back in and why? Tapered off because I got older. Yeah, <laughs> that's my, true. <laughs> Use my stick more, got smarter. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, my, my dad always said, and, and you hear parents all the time say, make sure you try and get on the score sheet if it's a goal assist or whatever. Um, so I, I kind of had a goal. I tried to get 100, 100 PIMS each year, maybe 10 fights if I could. Uh, I wasn't a heavyweight, but I, I could chuck them, and, and I wasn't afraid to, to mix a few things up here and there. And um, Definitely at, towards the end of my career, I tailed off, but I think I got a little bit more nutty. I had one of my best buddies, Lance Galbraith, and I had an opportunity to play together and win together and go up to Alaska together. And We kind of took our – we always said we took our show on the road and – um, it, uh, it was pretty crazy, but I've always played on some tough teams with tough players. Um, and when you have tough teams with tough players, you can't just, you know, go into a shell. You got to stand up for yourself and you got to be a part of that. If you, if you want to play and if you want to have a, a, a long career. So kind of took it upon myself to do that when I could and, and, uh, kind of maybe gave me, got me a little bit more grittier as we, uh, as I got older and, yeah. and kind of took over my game. So you've got a uh, long history with, with Idaho, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, but you win two cups in uh, 2004 and in 2007. And, and of course with, with the aces in Alaska uh, in 2011, I think, but talking about Idaho, what made Idaho special around that time of 2002 to 2008? And this was also WCHL. So kind of one of my questions too, is what, what went on there? Cause then it, was the East HL in 2003. Yeah. yeah. So after my year in, in Toledo, I, um, I followed my coach. I became a free agent because of the two way deal with Adirondack and Toledo. So I became a free agent. The head coach there was Murray Eves. Um, and he took the head coaching job in Wheeling. That's why I went to, to Wheeling. He asked me to go to Wheeling. Uh, I went there and, and, uh, you know, finished my career. I didn't really have a good career there. I blew my shoulder out, needed shoulder surgery right at the end of the season. Uh, ended up getting mono halfway through the year. So it was kind of a write-off. Uh, went, went home in the summer, had a, my shoulder done in Edmonton. Uh, then I was offered a tryout to go back to Wheeling. And I, I kind of looked at it and said, are you kidding me? And just got cleared to, to uh, play through my shoulder. And uh, it was actually uh, Elaine Lemieux was the head coach, Mario's brother, first-year head coach. Asked me, hey, told me, we want to fly you down. We want you to get off the plane. You got to play that night. And I said, well, I, I – you're flying me from British Columbia and I had to pay my own way. And I just laughed at him. And then that's when uh, John Olver called me and said, Hey, listen, you want to come down to Idaho? And I said, I said, it's a great opportunity. My agent at the time was Carlos Sosa is a well-known agent. And uh, 
he says, Hey, go to Idaho, just go there on a tryout. You'll make the team. So I said, I said that to John Albright, I said, just give me an opportunity. I'll come there. I'll make your team. You'll love me. So I went there and, and uh, made the team and, and uh, it kind of speaks, speaks for itself. My career there, Idaho is a great spot. It always reminds me of Kelowna, BC. Um, very clean, very, very professional organizations. Unbelievable. And if I, again, I look back at it, I was in the final six times. I lost two in game seven, a double OT game six, and then won three cups. So uh, could have had six, won three. That's good enough. You know, uh, I still want more as a coach, but uh, Idaho was good to me. We always had good teams. John Oliver is a great coach, great recruiter. Uh, always recruited uh, the best players in the West Coast Hockey League at the time was, it was, it was almost like an IHL. The IHL was kind of folding the older players, uh, we're starting to, um, they wanted to continue to play. And like I said, the IHL was folding. So the West Coast Hockey League was really the, the place. We had good cities, Bakersfield, um, who was in it, San Diego, Long Beach was in it, uh, Colorado Springs, Boise, Phoenix. So, I mean, if you're at the end of your career as an older player, if you're in the IHL or, or slowly uh, leaving the NHL, why not go to a nice hot, city and, and play you know so guys would kind of tend and end their careers down there so it was a tough it was a tough league and it was a fast league because it was almost a, an IHL and then a couple of years in the West Coast Hockey League turned in the ECHL when teams started to amalgamate with the ECHL and, and it became not the East Coast Hockey League but the ECHL where we added uh, obviously Las Vegas came in I think Phoenix might have been in the at the time Bakersfield and then they moved to the American League so uh, there was a lot of movement, but, uh, it was fun. And now we're here in the ECHL again. So during, again, during that, that time was in, in Idaho, was it a culture of the team? Was it like you said, the coach really having top-notch players recruiting at that time? What made the team so strong and seem kind of, at least on, on paper, seemed really special? Yeah, we had good leaders. We, I mean, I don't know if you know the name, Cal Ingraham. Uh, Paul Correa said Cal Ingraham, he, he, that's the best hands he's ever seen. Played in Maine. He's only about five foot six, uh, but he had unbelievable hands. So he, he was unbelievable. Uh, Jeremy Millamock, who's a tough guy, won a couple cups in the IHL, is now running uh, Notre Dame, Notre Dame Hounds there in Wilcox, Saskatchewan. Eric Rube's now an associate coach, and uh, I think he's in uh, Miami of Ohio now. Um, but we had good leaderships and, and, and guys wanted to come and guys wanted to stay there. Boise is an unbelievable spot. And we always won. They had a great rank. Uh, like I said, the organization was great. We had a lot of players. You look back now and, and I can go back to Idaho. We, there's probably eight to 12 guys that, that lived there that ended up uh, marrying local uh, uh, women there and, and just make their careers. The fans were unbelievable. A lot of guys ended up getting jobs right there um, in Boise and no one wanted to leave. It was, it was awesome. Uh, and that's still like that nowadays. Um, but John Oliver, yeah, he always, he always recruited the best guys and, and we always had a good core leadership group. And when you have that, it's easy to, to get guys to come in and buy into what you're preaching. And we always said when we're recruiting, Hey, come to us We're you're going to continue to make more money as we go in the playoffs. And we're going to continue to go in the playoffs because that's just what we did. And that was the culture that was built there. And um, it was one of those ones you can go to a team and just go, okay, well, I'm going to go here to Long Beach. We're not going to be very good when the season's done. I'm going to go back home. Or you can go to a team like Boise, 
that uh, or Vegas had a good teams at the time. Fresno had good teams that are going to continue on. They're going to always push for the playoffs, push for a championship and make more money before you have to go back to the real world in the summer and, and get a job. So um, the culture there is unbelievable. It hints why they've made the playoffs for what, 22 straight years. Um, it's just followed, uh, followed the tradition, uh, good culture. And in all honesty, that's what we're trying to uh, trying to do here in Rapid City. So if, when you're a, a young pro, did you have a vet that kind of served as a mentor or somebody that maybe took you under the wing to teach you a little bit about what it's like being a pro? Yeah, I would say Jeremy Milmock. Um, he was, he was the, the typical pro. He, he had two young boys at the time, he had a wife. So it was just like, whoa, wow, this is real reality. And, and you have to play if you want to make this is your life. This is what these guys do. And there's a couple other guys that ended up having wives and, um, and kids. So it was like, this is, again, that's big boys hockey. The ECHL at the time was still a younger league, but this is more of a, a grown ups league. Almost like I said, the IHL, right. Got a lot of ex NHL players played, but Jeremy was, was a guy that I still even turn to these days. Uh, he's got two boys, one up in Fairbanks, one in Duluth, uh, that are still playing. They're going to be good pros when they're done. But, uh, he was probably the, the one guy that, uh, uh, really kind of took me under and, and we ended up all buying houses there in Boise and lived a couple blocks away from each other. So we were all really tight, tight knit group. Yep. So I'm curious. So a lot of, uh, previous guests that we've talked to, um, normally after a few years of playing, whether it's, uh, the ECHL, AHL, I've noticed, uh, you know, as you're talking about too, is people don't realize, you know, ECHL players don't get paid a lot and have to work, uh, summer jobs to make ends meet. Most of the time players jet overseas, uh, to go, play in various leagues, wherever that might be. And most of the time we hear because they pay a lot more, which we didn't realize at first until we started doing this podcast. Did you ever get offers or ever consider going overseas or did you just want to stay put, you know, in the ECHL? No, I was pretty comfortable in Boise. I, I, uh, as my, my career moved on, I ended up meeting a local girl there and got married and, and kind of settled down and, and just, Really, that probably would have been my my spot. Um, and then a few things happened after my second cup there. And, and uh, uh, for me, it was it was uh, you know I had to leave. Uh, it was time for me to leave. Went through uh, uh, some personal stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it, it was a great it was great. I, do I look back? Maybe I should have went to Europe. Maybe I would have had maybe made a little bit more money over there, especially the way that I played. Um, bigger rank there, I. It was pretty fast and I could play that game as well. Uh, but I was happy with where I'm at, how I'm at, and, and uh, the opportunity that the ECHL gave me. That's for sure. So you're certainly not afraid to uh, mix it up and stand up for your teammates. And uh, you, you, you like to play a physical game. What is your preparation? Uh, we talked to the, and when I say older players, I mean guys playing early 80s, even in the 70s. You know, they would talk about not much as far as lifting weights or training, uh, but yet today, uh, you know, even in the East Coast League, those guys take their bodies, their preparation so seriously. Uh, it's, it's, it's inspiring. But what was your sort of routine to stay in shape, to get faster, to be smarter, whatever that it is? What was your preparations? Well, I was always fast, but it, it, realistically, it was you started – 
when I got into June, you started taking care of yourself. When I was in Edmonton, I would spend the summers in Edmonton. I'd work in the mornings at mow lawns at the Northlands Coliseum there right by the rinks. Um, and then we had a, we had a workout group at uh, university of Alberta, uh, put on by our trainer, um, Rick Chamney. And, and, uh, our group was, was made up of guys at American hockey league, a couple of NHL guys. And, and real, realistically, we spent all summer doing that. And that kind of opened my eyes to say, Hey, you got to get yourself in shape. And then I would do that for a few years. And then when I got settled down in Edmonton, there was a, a place called uh, athletic training center where they had an indoor, uh, uh, skating treadmill that I would go on and do stuff there and, and kind of work out on my own. But we always had the ice there and we had a lot of players that stayed in Edmonton or sorry, Edmonton, uh, uh, Boise there. So we, we would train together and we work out together and, and that kind of just kept me going. And as I got older, I knew exactly what I needed to take care of my body and, and uh, prolong my career. So um, I'm sure you get asked this one a lot. Uh, and this is anybody that's not uh, follows uh, uh, ECH, ECHL. You played and won another cup in Alaska. So I guess it would be similar to uh, the Newfoundland team. Now, what was it like to play in Alaska and I'm assuming you guys are flying anywhere you have to go. What was it like playing in Alaska? It was awesome. Uh, I had the opportunity. They were in the league when we uh, when I was playing in Boise. We had battles all the time. They, they hated playing up there, uh, hated the fans. Um, they had cowbells and whatnot. And then we got up there and I loved them. Uh, but it was awesome. They had an Olympic-sized rink, the only Olympic-sized rink in the league. Uh, but it's tough. It's tough travel to get up there and, and, and play up there because it's a – hostile environment they had some good teams scotty gomez and those guys played up there and uh they had some tough teams um after i left idaho i, I came to utah here for one year and then went up to alaska um but keith mccambers was the head coach at the time uh i had a lot of battles with him and when when i lost out here with the grizzlies we uh gave me a call and said hey do you want to come up and be my player assistant coach and kind of follow the footsteps that i went through and I did that and, and helped them out, kind of learn the coaching side of the game. Uh, it was something that I, you know, if I wanted to stay in the, in the game, I had to do something. And that was something I really liked doing and um, kind of followed him. And I had him for a year. We lost out in game seven, my first year up there. And then the next year, Brent Thompson, who's now in, in Bridgeport, the head coach, I had him for two years and I uh, got the taste. I, I think I broke my hand that year, uh, broke my foot, one of the two. And, I uh, was able to go behind the bench and, and help out with uh, with him and a few things. And then, um, you know, I retired after my last cup up there and then joined Rob Murray and his staff up there for two years. And it was it's an experience. It's awesome. Uh, I love Alaska. I love going up there. My wife is from Alaska. Um, we spend our summers up there. Hence, I got I think I got I think five guys from Alaska either played hockey at uh Fairbanks or Anchorage or from up there. I, I just, I just love the people up there and I know what it takes to live up there. So I like to bring those players in uh, on my teams. And so you were captain for those last three years uh, with Alaska before you uh, became assistant coach over there. And I don't want this to sound like a generic question. I, I genuinely am curious, especially for, you know, younger kids that are playing and maybe trying to develop some strong leadership skills. What does it take to be a captain, to be a leader? I mean, there's got to be more than just, oh, you have to lead, do this, do that. I mean, is it showing up to practice early? Is it picking up the new guys from the airport? Is it, I mean, as a captain, I assume Holding there's a lot more responsibility. Maybe, yeah. Right. I mean, what, what was kind of your job? And clearly you're good at it. So what, what does it take to be a captain? Well, it, I think I learned from good, good hockey players and people. Um, 
and for me, it was it was learning every day when I turned pro. Um, I became a, a captain when I was in uh, Idaho there, and and uh, I was uh, I was a captain when I was here in, in Utah for the year, and then when I went up to Alaska, they they asked me to come up to be a player coach, player assistant coach. But with that, that uh, uh, that brought me to become the captain of the team. Um, and I think it was just, just my career and, uh, what, what they saw in it and, and what kind of person I was and what kind of leader I was, obviously, um, when you've won championships, uh, that speaks a lot. And just like my teams here, I want players that have been captains or players that have won championships. And I want to surround myself with good people. And I think going to those teams, um, you know, as a coach, you're, you can put up a game plan and the players have to trust you, but you have to have a good core group of guys. You have to have the good leadership group, captain, non-captain, older guys, um, but just someone who can take control of the room. And, and that's what they wanted me to do up there is take control of the room and, and show them the right way and how to play and how to be a pro and how to win. So I think I had that in my back pocket and, and uh, you know, that's why I was uh, a captain everywhere I've been. And is that what led to uh, your decision to want to uh, try and be um, in, the, in the coaching world professionally, or uh, was that already something that you already wanted to do? No, it was something I always, I always wanted to do. I, I would help out with, uh, with teams. And then, and then, you know, given that opportunity to, to go up as an assistant coach, it was like, wow. And I, again, I felt the, the, the shoes of Keith McCambridge and he went up there as a player assistant coach when his career was kind of running down and he was an assistant coach, player assistant coach to Davis Bain, who's now on the bench in, uh, he's been a head coach in the NHL. He's on the bench in Ottawa. So um, Keith wanted me to, to follow in those footsteps. And um, I always asked him, why, why did you want me? And he said, because you're a battler. And we used to have our battles and I would just get up and just go, 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 go and nonstop. And I think, you know, you take that into the coaching world because you, you don't stop as a coach. You, you keep working every day. And I always say, I mean, it's a cliche that everyone talks about it. And if you don't, if you're not working, someone else is working harder than you. And uh, I make sure that I work my tail off every day. And my wife sometimes rolls her eyes um, that I work too much. But I mean, I have to prepare myself for every single situation. I have to prepare my team for every situation. And I can't leave any, uh, any stones unturned, that's for sure. So I do want to ask you a couple uh, Rub Murray questions here. So uh, when Murray uh, leaves Providence as head coach and he goes to Alaska <clears throat> and you're his assistant coach, um, first of all, what was it like working under him, working uh, with him? Uh, and what were you surprised about Murray? Because I guess uh, you could say kind of a demotion going from an AHL head coach, but he seemed to have taken it stride and, and uh, moved Alaska to, you know, win a uh, cup in uh, 2014, I believe. What's, what's a little bit about working with Rob Murray? Well, Rob was a demanding coach. Um, I was, I was on my way up to, to Alaska uh, when he ended up getting, obviously the, the head coaching job, he was let go in Providence. Um, he was really close with uh, uh, Brent Thompson, who was the, the head coach. And before that, but for the two years, and then we won and then Brent got the job in, in Providence or sorry, in, in Bridgeport. Uh, he's been with the Isles for God going on eight years now or whatever it is. 
Um, but then right after that, like Rob came in and, and Rob knew it was an opportunity for him to, to run another bench. You know, he just got released from, from Providence. So um, for him, it was, it was, Hey, listen, I'm back in the coaching game. It doesn't matter where I'm at. Like I'm coaching again. That's what coaches want to do. They, they just can't sit back. They just want to uh, continue to coach, but he was demanding. He, he uh, allowed me to be me. He gave me a computer right away and said, uh, he, he told me, uh, said, here, learn, learn, and I'll help you learn. And he helped me learn. And, um, but it was good. I, I think, I think, you know, for my, I'm always just, if I don't know, I'm, I'm going to try and figure out what I need to do to understand. And that first year was, I sat up there and I, I cut video and um, I watched, turn, turn, turn the music down. Um, I, I sat there and I watched and I learned. I, I learned what he did. I, I learned his preparation. I, I learned his details. And um, that guided me to my second year where now I had a little bit more uh, um, trust in him and, and he had trust in me where, where I was now a part of really the coach stuff where I was on the bench and I was continuing working players. Now that second year I had, I had uh, Scott Gomez, Mike, uh, Mike Dubinsky or Brendan Dubinsky, um, Joey Crabb, Timmy Wallace, all these NHL guys because of the lockout was there. So when the lockout was on, it was just like, wow, Nate Thompson would come in. He's now in Philly. He would come in and every day and say, Hey, what's our PK stuff? What, what did we have? What kind of video do you have on these guys? So, Right there, it was like, wow, okay, well, I have to be prepared and I have to have that stuff ready every single morning because it's a little bit different in the ECHL or back in the day where you really didn't have that video. But what you did have, these NHL guys coming in, they're like, well, no, this is what we do daily. This is – so for me, it was like, wow, now I really am learning. And I think, I think that second year when I was there with those guys really prepared me to be prepared every day, especially learning from NHL guys. So you, uh, you move on, you uh, head co- uh, assistant coach, a few other places, you go back to Washington again. There's that, you know, another connection for you. You seem to be a guy that um, doesn't burn bridges, build bridges. And you, it seems like you have a lot of connections a big network. Is that true? Yeah, I do. I, I know a lot of people along the way. And, and I think it just really comes down to uh, uh, being a good guy, a hard worker. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've met a lot of people, you know, obviously for where I've been, how I've been there and what I've done. So um, there, that, that's helped me out. And, you know, when I went back to Washington, when I went to Spokane, like I said, at the beginning of our, our, our talk, I started now working with uh, Don Knockbar. And he was my first coach in the Western Hockey League. And I always kept in contact with him. And the reason I kept in contact with him is because I wanted to learn from him, you know. And he was an established coach. He played in the NHL. He was a tough guy. Um, and then he then he got into his coaching career, Western Hockey League. He's been in the NHL, uh, an assistant coach. Now he's a, uh, an assistant coach in, um, in Stockton. But he's also, I think he's third. Um, third with most wins or second with most wins in the Western hockey league. So he's been there and he's done that. So that's another good mentor to, uh, to work with. And I know I was fortunate to work with him and learn from him because I can tell you, he's probably the, the smartest hockey mind that I've come across with, uh, come across with, with knowing how to make adjustments, knowing when to make adjustments. Um, and it's, uh, it's helped me big time along the way. And that just keeps those connections. You know, I, 
uh, he's working with a guy named Mitch Love. Uh, he was a head co- he was the head coach here in Stockton, which is one of my close friends. So uh, I've always I've always uh, been told this when when you um, meet someone, you want to talk to someone. In the summer, I want to talk to one coach every day. Doesn't matter if it's my assistant coach. Doesn't matter if it's another coach. Uh, but I want to talk to some coach every day or every couple of days. So you stay in tune and you, you keep your connections up. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have some guys that I can look back back on and, and up to uh, guys that are in NHL right now. If I need something, I'll make a phone call and, and uh, ask for an idea. And, and, you know, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone to call someone. That's the biggest thing. I think a lot of coaches nowadays, sometimes they just sit back and go, well, I don't know. I don't really know. Them. But if you're, if you think that, then you're probably, uh, you're never going to get the answer that you want. Um, so I just make connections. I'm kind of a happy-go-lucky guy that talks to anyone and whoever. So that's that's kind of what I like to do. And that's that's why I have a lot of friends out there, a lot of connections. So I want to bring up Idaho one more time. So 2018, uh, you have an uh, opportunity that a lot of players do not. You get your number retired. Uh, first of all, what was that like? But then um, I take it you get hired as an assistant coach there. Uh, for a year before you you get to Rapid City, but what was it like to have your jersey retired? Not too many players have that distinction. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I tell you, it was awesome. At the time, I was in Spokane. I was working in Spokane, and I got the call one morning, and I was sitting in the office with um, that was Don or it was uh, Dan Lambert. Uh, he's now an assistant coach in um, Nashville, and Adam Deadmarsh, old time player in the NHL, and. We were sitting there having a coffee and I got the phone call asking if uh, I'd be available this day. I think they called uh, um, Spokane already asking for the dates would be a good date. And they kind of had it planned out and uh, asked me if it would, uh, if it would be okay, if I could fly in there and, and uh, have my Jersey retired. So that was pretty special. It was, um, it was, you know, I look back on that and I really realized it wasn't, it wasn't me. It was, it was the players that, um, I was surrounded uh, by that helped me get there. It wasn't, it wasn't one thing specifically that I did. It was honestly the players and we won because I told you right from the get go is that culture that we, that was set there. And, you know, I was just a piece of the puzzle that uh, gave us an opportunity to win, win and, and learn from and it. I mean, I always say this, if you're, if you're good to people, people are going to be good to you. And if, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big deal. If I tell my guys every day, it's, it's a good day to have a good day. So why waste a day and have a good day? Right. So yeah. um, I was very lucky. So you finally get the gig, you paid your dues as a player and, and as a coach. I mean, you certainly pay your dues. Now you're in rapid city. It's your first season. Um, first of all, what was it like to sign a contract as, as a coach and director of, of, of players, which oftentimes, um, and the ECHL is, is the same gig. Um, I understand. So what was it like to finally sign as a head coach? Well, I always say this to even, even Jeremy here, uh, who's going on, I think it's five years in there. I think maybe it's three years as an assistant or two years, four years. I can't remember what it I spent eight years as an assistant coach and they always talk about, make sure you're ready before, and I always said that I, I want to be prepared, over-prepared to be a head coach. And I interviewed for a few ECHL uh, head coaching gigs. I interviewed for the Idaho job where Brad Ralph got it after my first year as an assistant coach. And 
I look back and I think, you know what? In my mind, I thought I was ready. But now I look back and go, uh, not a chance I was ready. You know, just just the things that you learn. The interviews that I've done. Tim Speltz is now the GM of Henderson Golden or Silver Knights. And he told me, do more, as many interviews as you can. If you get the job, you get the job. But it's going to prepare you to be a head coach. He was the first GM that hired me. And, you know, I just learned um, a from different coaches. And I, I go back to, if I would have got that job, I may, maybe would have failed. I would have worked my tail off to understand what I needed to do, but I learned from Don Dockbar and Dan Lambert, how to really be prepared, prepare your team and how to hard, work hard. And, you know, that's what I strive for daily. And that's what, you know, I hope I can help, you know, my staff and my coaching staff along the way. And as we continue to grow as coaches, and people, that's what I want to be known as, someone that works hard and uh, prepares your team. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a fun ride. But that first, uh, that first day when I, I went through the process, was, uh, it just felt kind of natural. You know, you had the opportunity to go back to Idaho with work with Everett Shane when I, my contract wasn't renewed in Spokane. But, you know, that's hockey and that's life. And, you know, it's going home to tell your wife and, and my daughter, hey, listen, we we got to move because my contract wasn't renewed. And that's really the first thing about being a, a head coach because, you know, they always talk about you're hired to get fired. Right, right. And and when my when my uh, when my contract wasn't renewed, um, you know, that was the first time I was realistic. I was really fired from a job. And um, now you're. You better figure out life quick. And I was fortunate that I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to Idaho and work there. So how on earth do you manage your time? I mean, being the head coach, and as you both have said, you guys um, are also director of hockey operations. So you got to sign the players, do, do your uh, due diligence for research and everything. How do you balance the time? I obviously know it's more than a 40-hour-a-week gig, um, but, I mean, that's got to be a lot to handle. Well, in the season, it's not a 40-hour 40, 40, uh, uh, week. It's every day, every minute you're, you're thinking hockey, you're working with agents, you're working with players, you're working with your staff. You, there's a lot of phone calls that happen. It's, it's early morning. It's at the rink at no really later than 6, and you're leaving it. You can get all your stuff done, and you're prepared. It's, you go home, and my wife has it now that, you know, if I – Tuesdays and Thursdays, I get an opportunity to uh, – to go and drop our, our daughter off at swimming lessons. We can go have a, a quick beer, but then it's right back home and having dinner and I'm watching hockey again. So, um, you know, you prepare yourself for the summer where you can kind of maybe take a little bit of time, just to maybe a week or so to relax and just kind of get away from hockey. But as of right now, I still don't get burnt out. I, I still like the game, still love the game. And, and this is a part of what I do every single day. So that's uh, the biggest thing for me, which I love. So talking strictly uh, what's going on right now, coach. So uh, Rapid City, I don't want to jinx it, uh, but you have a hell of a season. I mean, Rapid City, uh, us being Tulsa Oriole fans for the last maybe five or six years, uh, you guys are tearing it up, and hopefully you guys will continue that. Uh, you guys beat Utah on Wednesday. Uh, so right now you're in the top of the Mountain Division. You're in Utah. You play tonight, Friday, and Saturday. Um Again, you beat them on Wednesday. You know, they're 29 and one when they, uh, you know, shoot the puck more than the opposite player. What's your uh, game plan going into this weekend? 
Well, well, for us, it's it's uh, right from the get go. It's uh, to win the week. Um, wherever we play, whenever we play, we want to win the week, and that gives us an opportunity to to be where we're at. Um, you know, we just prepare our players. At the end of the day, the, the the players and the leadership group that we have in our dressing room is bought into what we're preaching daily. Um, and the guys, it, it, it's not us. It's it's the guys that go out there. We might not have the most talented group, but we have a group that works their their tail off every single day. And they they play structured, they play detailed, they they bought into what we preach. So um, nothing is guaranteed. It doesn't matter where we are today. Nothing is guaranteed tomorrow. So uh, we are going to continue to do what we do daily and uh, see what the outcome is. I I have we have a good group of of players and and. Um, and staff and our organizations backing us right from the right from the get go at the beginning of the season. So um, we have one goal, and that's to make the playoffs. And we'll figure out another goal right after that. But uh, nothing's guaranteed, and we we haven't uh, achieved anything yet. So I want to give a shout out to uh, to our friend, our boy uh, Jeremy Gates. Of course, your assistant coach, and he helped set this interview for us. And Jeremy's a great guy. You guys are leading the league with a penalty kill with something like 85, 86%. Is, uh, is Jeremy in charge of the power, uh, the penalty kill? Yeah, Jeremy does everything. He, he, he is the penalty kill guru of our team. He knows what he's doing. He, he, he runs the penalty kill. He's probably the best penalty kill coach in the league. Um, but we, uh, we have a good group. Like I said, at the end of the day, we can just talk about and show guys clips here and there, but it's them. We're not going on the ice to block shots. They're the guys that put their bodies on the line every day. They're the guys that, that work for the 20, 30 seconds. And we ask them to do it and, and get off the ice. And um, how you set up a PK or a PP, you have to have structure first and foremost. You have to have the buy-in. You have to know what you're talking about. And, and uh, you know, Jeremy's doing a really good job at that. And, and uh, we just, we give the message and, and, uh, information of the guys but they go out there and they uh they execute yeah that penalty kill was pretty brutal against Tulsa when we went last uh last month uh, to one of the games and it's almost every time by the third period every time we got a power play I was just not even wanting the power play that that large box how aggressive you guys are I mean it was just like every time that they'd pass the puck there's just so much pressure and they don't have time to get the puck off are you guys going to continue that aggressive game, especially going into the playoffs? You mean the large box straight? versus small box? Well, not even just that, but just the aggressive play, not even just talking about the PK, but just, you know, the forecheck and everything. Um, but well, you guys play- it, a lot of it comes down to the pre-scout on, on different teams that you play and, and tweaks here and there and a lot of, a lot of tricks up the sleeve here that uh, a, we've seen before and, and we can make adjustments to and, you know, I go back to my Idaho days when, when I was even coaching there. It, as funny as it may sound, we had guys that bought into the PK um, and wanted to be on the penalty kill. And if we'd given, I think we went 29 or something, 30 straight kills. And at one point there, when we gave up a goal, our guys were so disappointed that we gave up a goal. It didn't care about the power play. They just wanted to kill a penalty. It was unbelievable. <laughs> well, that was that was the buy-in from the group that we had, and that's the buy-in that we have from here with our group. A lot of our structure uh, and um, realistically is all about what we see. Is what kind of team is Utah? Is Utah a running gun team? Yeah. What do we have to do to counter that? We have to have good gaps. We have to have a, a high four. We have to kill plays early. Make them dump bucks, which they don't like to do. So, uh, for us, it's all about uh, uh, preparing our players. 
giving them the information and again, buying, buying into what we preach if we uh, make an adjustment along the line. So I'll put on my uh, news reporter hat here, media hat for one question. And this is going to tie into that director of hockey operations. So uh, recently you trade two players uh, to uh, Norfolk uh, for Kyle Rhodes, a uh, great player. Uh, I remember him playing for Tulsa, a uh, really good defenseman. He's like 6'2", 210. Um, you know, he's a, he's a strong, he can score, but he's also protects the net. So what was the uh, thought process for you to trade the two players for him? And what do you think he's going to bring now towards the playoff push? Well, we have a really good group of guys here. Um, and with that being said, the two guys that left are really good guys. Uh, but I had to shed, A, I had to shed down roster. Um, you can only have a certain amount of players on your team and and you know we're preparing ourselves too that we're going to get a few guys that are up in the American hockey you don't have one uh, player in the team that's on a, uh, an ECHL a two-way contract with the American League or NHL so um, with that being said we, we still have a few guys up in the American League that are on ECHL contracts we expect to get those guys back here in the near future and uh, with those guys coming back typically I don't really like to release a player where they don't have any place to play so this was an opportunity for us to do, give a two for one where we now open up some roster space, but also uh, allows us to get a, a pretty heavy D man that has played in the league. Um, we had the opportunity to see him uh, about a month down the road when we were back when we were in Norfolk there and he played a hard game. And, um, you know, for us, it's, it's about preparing ourselves for the playoffs as well. Uh, like I said, nothing's guaranteed, but for us, it's, we have to prepare ourselves to have the best core group of guys as well as depth uh, down the road. So he was a, uh, an acquisition that uh, we thought would help our team out. He's a good man. Uh, he's excited to join our team. and He's going to be in the lineup tomorrow night. So, Coach, we'd like to end this with uh, a little bit of a uh, lightning round question. So this is going to be from your playing days. Uh, whatever comes to your mind, whether it's a name or if you've got a story and you've got a, a moment to tell it, feel free to. But uh, we're gonna, just going to ask you some quick questions and try to uh, put your mind to work a little bit. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, boy. Here we go. This can even go back to your junior days, Scott. But uh, what was the worst arena for ice conditions? Fresno. What was it, <laughs> Fresno. What, what, why was it so bad in Fresno? Well, they, there was there was two things, uh, and it, there's two parts of this. One, we played right downtown uh, in Fresno, California, when it was hot out, um, and we would typically play Fresno towards uh, later in the playoffs when it was getting really hot out. So the ice conditions were terrible. They were sloppy. They were slushy. Um, and then the other side of that, they moved from that rink to uh, on on campus, Fresno State. Uh, so they had, they put in the basketball rink there. So it went from oh. downtown out to there and there was a lot of uh, uh, changeover. So there's a lot of concerts that were played at the Fresno rink um, on campus. And then obviously with the basketball team and they were always a good team. They always played the night before. So with that changeover, Hey, there was a lot of times that there was late pregame skates, the ice wasn't done the right way. And it was, uh, it was pretty heavy. So I would say Fresno is probably the worst Toughest goalie to play against? Uh, I think I would go back to a goalie that I had in Dan Ellis. 
couldn't score on him. He knew exactly what I was doing every single practice, and I couldn't score on him. And now he's a, I think he's a development coach for the uh, Chicago Blackhawks right now. But Dan Ellis ended up starting out ECHL and, and worked his way up to the NHL. Uh, played for Dallas a little bit, played for Nashville for a little bit, and, and uh, he's probably the hardest goalie that I've ever uh, ever faced. Which player had the innate ability to get under your skin? So who was the rat in your career? <laughs> Uh, if I look back on it, it was Garrett Hunt. Uh, he would not stop chirping, and I probably had to fight him about ten times because he wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> he he was tough as nails. He didn't care. He'd fight anyone. Um, but he uh, he's probably the biggest rat that I've ever uh, ever come across um, that I had to uh, had to deal with daily and game. And oh my god, that's why he was in. Yeah, I think he might even still be playing. I'm not sure. I think he played last year, but. Um, he's a player that uh, would get under your skin and would get underneath the, uh, the bench's skin or chirp the coach, and you'd have to go as a captain or whatnot. You have to jump on the ice and square off, and that's something that he did good and, and did well, and and I hated it. hated uh, hated every bit of him. But I haven't met him. No, he's a good guy off the ice from what people have told me. Uh, but he was the biggest rat that I've ever uh, been across. Who is the toughest player? And I don't mean uh, squaring off fighting. I mean, who is the strongest player you've had to play against? You just couldn't move this guy. Uh, well, I'll go back to my teammate, Jeremy Oblonsky. Yabo uh, and I had an opportunity to play together in junior. Uh, we played together in Idaho. We, we bought houses right across the street from each other. We're really, really close. We're uh, We've gotten a lot of trouble together on and off the ice, and uh, he's probably the toughest player that I've ever uh, come across. He's done MMA fighting. He's now doing undercover stuff overseas. He's he's uh, uh, the toughest guy that I've come across. About to say, you didn't ever have to fight him, right? <laughs> yeah, no, he's not that dumb. Come on, you didn't fight no. him, did you? No, no way. That's, what, that's, that's why he was always on my team. That's why <laughs> I was always best buddies with him. <laughs> So uh, going back to the worst arena stuff, which one had the worst locker rooms? The worst locker rooms. Why don't we ask uh, this? How about, how about in the East Coast League? Who, who has the worst locker rooms in the East yeah, Coast? Yeah. Well, I think, it's, I, I think now it's, it's, your, it's your mandatory to have uh, a nice dressing room <laughs> for the visitors, <laughs> for sure. It's uh, gone are the days where it's just a chair and that's it. Um, but I, I can go back there. You go back to the same kind of deal with uh, Fresno, the downtown rink in Fresno. Actually, I'd even go even to, and I don't know how they've done it now, but the San Diego Gulls back when they was in the West Coast Hockey League didn't have a good uh, dressing room. Uh, the only thing that they had, which was awesome, was the Gulls girls would uh, they would do their cheerleading practice before we went out for warm up. So that was uh, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why all the guys were outside taping uh, uh, their stick or doing their uh, their laces on their skates in the hallway. Um, but uh, uh, I would probably go San Diego. I'm pretty sure it's probably changed now. Um, but uh, especially with an American League coming in or American League team coming in. But uh, I would say maybe them. What's the craziest and most embarrassing thing to happen to you during pregame? Uh, like a warm up or during a game. Okay, hold on. I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go back to that last question because it just yeah. came to my head. Toledo, it, the old sports arena in our home dressing room. 
it was terrible. I forgot about this. Chris Bastel, longtime uh, equipment manager for the Idaho Steelheads. He would have to sharpen skates out in the garage. Okay. <laughs> and we would, we would get, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We would, we would get changed. And if a guy was in the shower, which had a curtain and they had, they had one toilet, which had a curtain, not a door, none of that was right in the middle of the dressing room. They went to the washroom and a guy, I'll never forget this. A guy's in the shower. They, 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 before he flushed the toilet, he goes fire in the hole and you have to get out because, because you'd, you'd get, you'd get burnt with the hot water. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. The Toledo sports arena, worst dressing room ever. <laughs> Forgot about that. Oh yeah. Most embarrassing or craziest thing to happen to you during a game or pre-warm? Um, God, I, I was always actually pretty lucky to not really fall or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you didn't get hit in the head with a puck during warm-up or anything? No. Nowhere in the bucket? No, <laughs> no, but Gator and I today jumped in on a line and I drove to the net and Puck actually, Gator shot it, went off our goalie and knocked my hat off. So that could have been close to having a black eye. That would have been awesome. Um, but I was actually, I've actually been pretty, pretty good that way. I, I was always, I kind of stay away from that stuff. My first year um, when I was playing, we didn't have to have uh, helmets and warm ups. Uh, probably most, I guess if I look back now, most embarrassing part was probably that I had frosted tips. <laughs> um, skate, yeah. skating around with no helmet but um but that was probably yeah if i look now that was the most embarrassing i was embarrassed for myself by when i looked back at the pictures you, you didn't have the mullet did you i mean that's the key no i didn't have the moulet no yeah. <laughs> but i but i had the frosted tips yeah, yeah. Well, Scott, I know we were taking up uh, a lot of your time today. I know you're a busy guy. So the last question I just want to ask you today, I know it's a bit uh, of a generic question, but uh, just the first moment that pops in your head, uh, just the best moment in your hockey career so far, whether it be from your playing career or post-playing career. I uh, went in the championship, probably my first championship. Um, we had a special group. Um, we knew that we were going to win. Uh, we just we just felt that. Um we had a good group of guys, but that first time lifting up a cup uh, is very special. And then two years down the road, doing it again and then doing it up in Alaska. Every championship that I've won is just a special moment that pops in. We've had great teammates, great coaches, great atmosphere. And this is the kind that you want to play. This is this is a fun time. I tell my players this all the time. It's This is what we play for. Yeah, An opportunity to give yourself a chance to win a championship. So and you, that's been like, yeah, go. So that's good. And you're one of like four or five ECHL players to uh, win the cup three or more times, I think. Mm -hmm. So he's, yeah, he's I think, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think one of those guys, uh, it's hard to do. It, it really is. Um, you have to be put in good situations. Uh, a lot of it is luck. Um, a lot of it is, is good teams, good, good, you know, teammates. Um, but I, you know, I, I've been lucky to, to have good guys that I've followed, been around good coaches, been a, around good organizations and um, good around the belief of what has been preached or what has been set from the get-go and not straying away from that. There's, there's, there's teams and, and, and I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know other coaches other than the guys that I've worked with that have 
uh, I've heard that maybe stray away from a certain message, but if you're stern and you have a message right from the get-go and you stick to that message and that plan and the players buy in, then they'll follow it. You know, when I first came in, I was, I had a whole new group of players. I, I didn't know Jeremy. Um, I didn't know my ATC athletic trainer. He was new. My equipment manager was, was new. Our radio guy was new. Myself was new. I think we had maybe two players um, here in Rapid City that signed back. I, I can't even remember. It's been a while. Um, but, you know, with that becomes a new voice, um, new systems, new structure. Had to get used to Jeremy. Had to build trust in Jeremy, you know. Uh, I hold I hold a lot of my information into myself, and that's only fitting. That's just what a coach does. He doesn't want to give up some of his secrets, and you have to build trust. If you don't have trust, then you get yourself in trouble, and you better find trust quick. Um, so I had to find trust, and I had to uh, grow with my group, and my guys had to believe and understand what I was preaching every day and the structures and the systems, and I had to be prepared. I had to have, um, you know, my power – my PowerPoint um, stuff right off the hop had to be top notch and right on or else guys are going to look at you and go, Oh my God, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So we had to be prepared right off the hop. And I had to build, or we had to build a group um, that understood. And if you look at my team they're they're not the most talented group, but they're a group that works their, their tails off every day. And a lot of guys have been kind of kicked to the curb. You, you look at the, the Vegas and they called them the misfits. Well, we look at our players and we look at guys who are having career years. Look at um, Logan Nelson, yeah. you know, nobody wanted Logan as a veteran. I'm like, yeah, I remember you from the Western league. I, I like your game. I will get the, the most out of you. And he's, I, I tell you, he's a top three player in this league. And yeah. he, he, that's what he wants. I mean, I look at, look at uh, Alec Butcher, you know, he was a high school teacher, uh, PE teacher last year, took the year off. Like said, coach, give me a chance. I said, you got it. Come down here, make my team, you know, did that. Bayless is having a career year. Guys, Quinn Wickers has been up in the American hockey league. At one point I had, I got six players up in the American league that are on ECHL contracts that nobody even knew. You look at, uh, I know I'm taking a bit longer. Look at Dylan Kelly. Yeah. Right. Started, started in the federal hockey league last year as a goalie. Went to the SPHL this year. It didn't have a good, uh, didn't good start. He was in Macon. And then he had one opportunity in Kansas City. I traded for him. He's 1-0 and with Kansas City. He's 9-0 and with us. Jeez. And now he's starting games in the American Hockey League. You know, so he had the beliefs. He had to build in the trust. And, and I had to build in the trust in him to, you know, stand up for him and, and let Tim Speltz know in, in, and Henderson, hey, trust me on this. Trust me on this. He'll help you guys out. You know, guys, Calder Brooks, who who uh, last year didn't play much when he was in, um, I think it was in Jacksonville. It's now up in the American Hockey League, right? So, so it, it, you know, the guys trust us. They believe in us. And with that, now we're getting noticed. And, and that's the biggest thing is, is Rapid City is finally back on the board. Uh, where we should be. And it's a great organization. We've got great ownerships. They take good care of us. And, uh, you know, for, for myself and Jeremy and our staff is, is to continue to build the organization where now we're respected. And I believe the, uh, we're starting to get respected again. 
Yes, certainly. I mean, like I said, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to talk too much about it, but you guys have just been uh, on a tear this year. And uh, I think it's all the things you're talking about, including, you know, you, you on the top leading from the top down. Um, so again, uh, where you are here, uh, there's not much left in the season, but you're in a battle for uh, first place still. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. If, if you do well in the playoffs and, and even beyond, uh, we'll have to have you back. You'll have to remember us that, uh, you know, we weren't the fair weather fans. We yeah. were just friends of Jeremy. Jeremy said, yeah. hey, I can get you the head coach on. Yeah. <laughs> you got my number now. So you guys are uh, – uh, you guys can call me anytime. Uh, like you guys said it right there, I have a lot of friends. If, if there's someone specific that you want, I'm sure I could reach out and – and get them on for sure if it's uh, Jeremy Oblonsky, Lance Galbert who had careers, or even Don Knockbar, or, or some of these guys that you uh, that you guys come up with. And, and if I've crossed paths, I'm sure I uh, have a good rapport with them. So whatever you guys need, I'll, I'll help you guys out and, and build your uh, build your growth to your guys with your podcast. And you guys want to talk to Terry Ryan, let me know. I get Terry Ryan on. He's got stories. Awesome. So, man. Let me know. That would be great. Coach, we'll say goodbye here off air, but officially we want to thank you for coming on and we wish you the best of luck. I think you're going to have one hell of a end of the season. Yeah. Well, that's our, that's our goal. Nothing's guaranteed. Tell my players this every day. Leaders got to lead. Followers got to follow. We just got to go work hard. Good things will happen. So, absolutely. you know, we've set ourselves up. Now we just got to, uh, got to do what we do best. That's awesome. So if all head coaches are as nice as uh, Coach Birdie, uh, you know, yeah, wow, yeah. So again, we want to uh, we know that he's listening. So Jeremy Gates, he's the assistant coach. Yep. He hooked us up with it, and we we had asked him. Um, I had actually reached out to Jeremy a couple of weeks ago. Andrew knows us, uh, just to say, hey, uh, you know, we'd love to have uh, one of the Rapid City players come on or whatever. And he, you know, Jeremy was nice enough. Matter of fact, we. We caught him after a game yep. here in Tulsa and he's like, sure. And then he was like, Hey, you know, coach Bernie would, you know, he's willing to come on. We're like, Oh, great. I mean, think about it. I mean, he's in the middle of his first season having season of seasons. Yeah. Like he said, uh, rapid city was in like fourth, fifth place for quite a long time. And now all of a sudden they're scaring everybody and right. for good reason. Right. Oh, and, uh, and he's coming on at the, probably the most critical time, of the season. Who knows? Maybe it was a stress relief for him. Um, but what uh, the listeners won't understand is uh, he started talking to us. He was inside Ohio, uh, right. Utah's um, arena. And just chilling and chilling. Know, we thought, oh, that's just nice. Like he was inside. And then he's walking around. And he's walking around the dressing rooms. Then he's, while we're interviewing him, he's packing up. And then he goes into the van and he must have told us coaches or something oh, or I, I think they're players whatever yeah. and, and of course the players are like not saying a word <laughs> right and no coach is busy and then, he, and then he finishes at the hotel he goes up to his room still talking to us and then he walked outside and uh, all within an hour i'd be exhausted but well and just nice enough for him to uh stay on and have the time to do that because dude i mean literally the whole time he's packing up he's yeah. trying to tell players you know you know turn things down do this do that, do that. so just very nice for him to uh, take the time today and to also give us an insight because is he our first head coach? I think he is. I, I thought we had another head coach no. on before, but either way, having any type of coach's assistant head coach, it's always great to have them on here because um, 
they have great hockey minds as well. And sometimes a bit different than players. Well, so. I wanted to ask him a couple other things and maybe later on, I'll ask him again, just about being like the rookie coach. Cause I had heard about, you know uh, you know, Murr here in Tulsa can be a little, uh, a little tough uh, Martinson down in uh, Allen. You know, we heard that, uh, you know, sometimes he's a little tough as far as coach to coach get along with. Right. And I don't want to put him on the spot. There's too much going on with him and, you know, they're having a, a great season, right. his first season as head coach. So I wanted to wanted to ask him about, hey, you know, did you, you know, I, have you been taken into the fold of these head coaches? Right. But if he wasn't, then, you know, yeah. they they are now because it, it, this is not a fluke season for them. And these are Tulsa Oilers fans that are speaking to you presently. Yes. And uh, Rapid City is in our division, but uh, – Hey, hockey's hockey, yep. and uh, we've uh, we've got a lot of friends that have uh, uh, that have come on the podcast and have become friends of ours, players, and uh, you know we we root for them all. So we're rooting, even though we want Tulsa to be doing well, but Rapid City, we want them to do well as well. Yep. And a group, a good group of of guys. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, we appreciate everybody tuning in today. We hope that you guys enjoyed the episode, and uh, don't forget to tune back to our. It was episode 67, the Lindroth Boys Hockey Talk, the second one. If you go to the end of that episode, you'll get another uh, glimpse of our upcoming guests. I don't have it off the top of my head and the date, so I don't want to jinx anything. But uh, just so you guys have an idea of who we'll have on the show, um, we have some pretty big guests coming up. And it's funny that he kept mentioning Terry Ryan. Terry and I keep texting back and forth. And look, he's a busy guy, and he's got his own podcast. And he had messaged me the other day. Again, and literally his message was, you know, hey, Andrew, uh, so sorry. This is, you know, kind of a weird question. He's like, did I end up coming on this podcast? Because I don't think I did, but I told you I would. And I was like, <laughs> nope, you didn't come on ours yet. But I was like, you know, we'd still love to have you on. And so uh, we'll definitely get Terry Ryan on here. Yablonski would be a good one. If you haven't watched him fight, probably the toughest guy. Yeah, he, he's like nasty. He is. He's, he's, he's pretty, nasty. pretty intense. So, uh, but again, we won't hit up uh, coach until after the season. He's busy. We yep. don't. We don't need that. Yep. But, uh, again, maybe he enjoys the stress relief of hey, I need a an hour to not think about yeah, coach. What I'm going to do here yeah. with this team. But anyway, we're getting a little long winded. We want to thank our listeners. Um, we've been making the charts again yep. uh, every once in a while from our different distributors, and it's hard. Like as a 53 year old guy over here, Andrew, I don't understand these podcast rankings. Mm. Um, I know there's like one for Google, uh, one for Apple, one for this, this and that. But it's strange every once in, you know, not every once in a while, but we usually get on the charts and we stay on the charts, whether right. it's UK, some random place like Latvia. Well, and if you tune in, like it depends on specific applications you listen to and what I've learned. And hey, if other podcasters happen to be listening to the tail end of this and know the answer, message us, text me. It would be awesome. But uh, I read that it's hard to pull all the data from specific uh, platforms like a Spotify and iTunes and combine them. And that's why they have a lot of separate uh, charts. Like just as a quick example, Good Pods is a uh, up and coming bigger podcast app that people use. And uh, um, we're like 10th all time for hockey podcasts. And last week we were number two for the week. So well, I don't it's, know it's what that weird, is, weird charting great. and stuff, weird things, but uh, we have noticed and we don't talk about it ever, but We've had quite a bit of listeners recently in the past two months. We've had 
I mean, we've doubled our downloads from all of last year within the past two months. So yeah, and we're we're really uh, each episode's getting uh, you know thousands of listens, yes. and we're appreciative of that. And again, we're appreciative of uh, our our sponsor, our parent company, Black yep. and Gold Productions LLC. And thank you to Mark Allred Jr. for always keeping us on board with the uh, podcast network and always offering his resources and uh, advice as well. So thank him again. Absolutely. So we'll catch you guys next week. It's Friday, but we'll probably release this on Monday. I don't like releasing podcasts on the weekend because people don't listen to podcasts as much. So true. Maybe true. we should wait till Monday. Maybe. Or maybe we'll be out today. We don't know. But okay. either way, have a wonderful weekend. And if you do, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. Take care. <laughs>